Welcome back. I'm Max Bergman, director of the Stewart Center in Europe-Russia Eurasia program at CSIS. And I'm Maria Snigovaya, senior fellow for Russia and Eurasia. And you're listening to Russian Roulette, a podcast discussing all things Russia and Eurasia from the Center for Strategic and International Studies. everyone, and welcome back to Russian Roulette. Today we're joined this morning by our frequent contributor to the show, Michael Kimmich. Michael is a non-resident fellow here at CSIS and also a professor of history at Catholic University. We're also joined today by Liana Fix. Liana is a fellow for Europe at the Council on Foreign Relations and an adjunct faculty member at Georgetown University. Michael and Liana are basically columnists now for foreign affairs, and today we're going to be discussing a recent piece they co-authored in Foreign Affairs titled Quote, a containment strategy for Ukraine, how the West can help Kyiv endure a long war. So without further ado, let's get into it. Michael and Liana, why don't the two of you just start by summarizing the main arguments and conclusions of your piece? I'm happy to start. So the idea for the piece came from the impression that after General Zaluzhny, the Ukrainian military leader, acknowledged that Ukraine is in a stalemate, suddenly there was a very pessimistic debate about Ukraine and the war emerging. And we had the impression that from the over-optimism that ruled before the counter-offensive began, suddenly both analysts and policymakers were moving towards a pessimism when it came to Ukraine's war that was exaggerated. So it led to a situation where the only options available that were discussed were, well, perhaps it's time for negotiations, or the other option was people who still still stuck to the idea that Ukraine can achieve a triumphant battlefield victory. So our thought was we need a third middle way between a triumphant battlefield victory, which is really unlikely for Ukraine in the near future, given the state of the counteroffensive, but also a middle way between this kind of pessimistic, well, Ukraine should now negotiate because there's no other way to win this war. And the third way that we chose and tried to explain is a strategy of containment, which is more long term than hoping for a quick victory and a quick defeat of Russia. I would add only that if you accept that framing of the war, not only does it give you a viable vision of future action, a kind of organizing frame for future action, but it also gives you a metric of the past that allows you to see, I think, in three dimensions, some of the policy successes that have already been achieved. And I think it's obviously a difficult moment of the war, you know, December 2023, and I think it will be for, for quite some time. And that's a good thing to analyze and to think through and to look at soberly as we try to do in this piece. But it's not as if everything has gone Russia's way since February 2022. Ukraine and its supporters have had quite a few successes. You know, the high degree of sovereignty that Ukraine still maintains, that the fact that Kiev is, you know, although still under attack, very much a functioning national capital, and the scale and scope of the assistance that's been provided to Ukraine, all of that does underpin a viable containment strategy. So I think it's just important in narrative terms to make that case and to do so at a time, of course, when the U.S. Congress is making the decisions it's making and when the EU and European governments have decisions ahead of them. If we characterize everything in the last year and a half or two years as a failure, we're just going to do ourselves a real analytical and possibly a kind of political and policy disservice. Thank you very much, Michael and Liana. Uh, could you maybe describe in a little bit more detail what does this containment strategy for Ukraine presume in terms of policies, certain steps that Ukraine shall take, etc.? So I think in terms of what is happening on the battlefield, we don't conceive of a containment strategy as Ukraine should not try to advance anymore on the battlefield. It's not the strategy 
for a stalemate or for attrition. It's a strategy where Ukraine should continue to pressure Russia. It should continue to pressure Russia in Crimea. It should use all the opportunities available to make Russia's position in Ukraine insecure, just not on the assumption that this will immediately lead to a significant liberation of Ukrainian territory, as we've seen in 2022. So Russia should be continuously pressured. And at the same time, on the Western side, the idea is to commit to which is something reminds U.S. Americans of other long wars that they had, but to commit to a long-term support for Ukraine, because this war is not going to be over in 2024. And this long-term commitment should exactly not be based on quick victories of Ukraine, but on a long-term strategy. Putting it into a framework of containment also helps to understand that this is not only about helping Ukraine, this is about achieving Western goals of containing Russia, And that is what is so important to us. It's not an act of philanthropy to support Ukraine, but the containment is in, in the West's interests. I think I would add only one point to that, which is that at the present moment, again, thinking a bit about narrative journalism, the kind of tone of the conversation, I think certain exaggerations are creeping in about, quote unquote, how well Russia is doing with the war. If we look at purely territory, and a lot of people have pointed this out, it's not an original insight on our part, but if you look purely at territory, the story is not great for Ukraine. The counter-offensive achieved less than, than Washington and Kiev would have liked. If you look at the maritime story of the war, you get something quite different, which is that Ukraine has achieved a degree of, of penetration of the naval blockade, and that's allowed it to export some of its grain. And there have also been a lot of setbacks for the Russian Navy in the last couple of months. And I think that a containment strategy, go back to Cold War precedent here, benefits Benefits from building on the other side, and it takes a lot of time, but it benefits from building on the other side a sense that the war is futile, that it's not going forward. And here I think you could really isolate the example of Crimea. It's not that Ukraine is poised to take back Crimea territorially, but Crimea is no longer a great place for Russians to go on vacation, as we point out in the article. It's, you know, more and more difficult to use as a staging base for attacks on Ukraine as it was used in February 2022. It's a harder place to store naval assets for Russia. In some ways, what Russia has done to itself with the war is to really de degrade Crimea as a military asset and as a part of Russia proper as the Kremlin sees it. That's only one piece of a much larger puzzle, but it is building uh, over time a kind of trajectory of futility that you know, we hope, and this is hard to articulate exactly how it would happen, but would sort of trickle down either to members of the Russian political elite or members of Russian society in such a way as to, over a very long-term trajectory, perhaps change the course of the war. So to really underscore something that Liana said, there is a kind of optimism to this strategy, but it does require a great deal of patience and a really long-term purview. Yeah, I think one of the things that I, I really liked about your piece is that It sort of reminds everybody in some ways that if you were to go back to February 2022 and you were to sort of say, well, by December of 2023, here's what happened in the war. I think everyone would have taken that, you know, and, and that all the supporters of Ukraine would have been like, that's amazing. Ukraine still exists. The Russians have been essentially beat back and have been really limited in their gains. They've lost so many forces. Ukraine has survived. So we tend to have, I think, kind of a fly-sized brain when when looking retrospectively. We only remember the last like 15 seconds of events that have occurred. And it also strikes me that when you sort of step back in the kind of broader issue of containment, and this sort of gets back to the Cold War period, you know, I can't imagine, I haven't looked at the literature closely enough, but that the Chinese or the Soviets were sort of exhausted by their support to the North Vietnamese in that conflict or to North Korea. 
And so I think viewing it in that terms that this is basically, you know, and, and we'll talk a little bit more about uh, Henry Kissinger, our, our uh, former colleague here, our late colleague at CSIS, but in sort of more Kissingerian realist terms of, well, I mean, a long war is a disaster for, for Ukraine and the Ukrainian people. But from a sort of a broader geopolitical perspective, we are really, in that sense, occupying one of our main adversaries and depleting them. So I'm curious if you see the kind of containment strategy in those sort of cold, realist terms. Now that you mentioned Kissinger, I'm sure Michael has something to, to add to that. I've just been rereading an intellectual book about sort of Kissinger's thinking and which places sort of a lot of his thinking into sort of the, the Nazi Germany context that he experiences and explains some of the pessimism that he drew from his view of international relations. From that perspective, I think what really helps in this perspective is to see at containment really not only as a normative or a moral strategy, right? I mean, as important as it is to see why sort of norms and values matter in Ukraine, containment really looks at the interest perspective of that. And I think it could not be timelier, as you said, at a time when the discussion is ongoing about why do we need to support Ukraine, to come back to that perspective that Kissinger terms, it's it's a power balancing which is taking place, right? I mean, that's not something which we like to see it today, but in his terms, it would be a power balancing of Russia's and, and a good investment in terms of power balancing. And of course, we would add all our sort of additional arguments to that, that it's normatively necessary, that it's a violation of international law and so on. So I think no one would just disregard the normative, normative perspective of that. But sometimes we focus too much on the moral of the case and less on the interest part of the case, which I think sort of turning this around would really help in arguing for Ukraine support, both in the Hill, but, but also in Brussels right now. I mean, I think Kissinger is a great entry into this conversation. It is the case that the historians disagree about Kissinger's legacy in this regard. You have Niall Ferguson, who argues that Kissinger was an idealist, kind of Kantian idealist who believed in a world of norms and values, but had a kind of Machiavellian way of pursuing that. And the more conventional image of, of Kissinger as somebody who very much emphasized interests, as Liana just, just outlined. I would make two points in this regard. I do think that Kissinger's respect for what we could describe as great power competition is worthwhile. It's worth acknowledging. Uh, and I think a presumption of a containment strategy, whether it's George Cannon in the 1940s or <laughs> Liana Fix and I at the, at the present moment, but the presumption is that Russia is not going to really go away, that we can't eviscerate it, we can't take it off the map, and we may not be able to change the Kremlin's fundamental calculus about Ukraine. Russia is a country with a lot of capacities, and that's something that we all dislike, but we're sort of obligated to respect that and to fit that into a larger grand strategy that has a China component and, and sort of other components. And I think containment in Ukraine certainly works quite well in that framework. But maybe we could access, if he's really there, Kissinger the idealist as well for the second point, which is that containment in my view, and I think I speak for Liana in this case, if I don't just, just let me know, Liana, but I think containment is also useful for one of the idealist projects of this war, which is the integration of Ukraine into Europe. If you say that Ukraine can only go into Europe when it fully wins the war, which is not quite what people say, but there are arguments that tend in that direction, what you're doing is postponing something probably for quite a long time. If, on the other hand, you say we can successfully contain Russia in Ukraine, in fact, we have successfully contained Russia in Ukraine, and simultaneously what that enables is different kinds of integration into Europe, maybe EU, maybe NATO at some point, but there are other kinds of integrations that matter, and that containment is a kind of enabling mechanism in this regard, 
I think you're sort of squaring the circle. You're speaking to the interests that we have, but you're also providing a vision that's, you know, not just uh, raw interest or not just military conflict. So I see that as the, the kind of highest value of containment, that it's in addition to a military strategy, it's a strategy for Ukraine's integration into Europe. I may just jump in on the topic of Kissinger, since we're already kind of here. My understanding, at least perhaps correct me if I'm wrong, of his policy towards the Soviet Union and Russia was actually somewhat the opposite of what you're recommending, right? He essentially pursued detente in one shape or another consistently at the time when uh, both during the Cold War and more recent decades, the um, relationship between Russia and the United States reached a certain escalatory point. And I guess the argument was that, hey, we don't want to push Russia away, given that we have another elephant in the room, which is China. So we need to somehow be friendly, or at least uh, on speaking terms, so to speak, with, uh, with Russia. However, it seems that your suggestion is the opposite, right? That you're saying, hey, we should be actually not de-escalating, we should be containing. Could you elaborate a little bit on this, what seems to be a little bit a contradiction between what his prescription would have been in this case and your suggestions? I think sometimes it's difficult to sort of fully see all the consistency in Kissinger's thinking and recommendations throughout the decades. I do think that at latest with Russia's attack on Ukraine, the whole idea that you would need Russia to sort of contain China, sort of one of the most famous parts of Kissinger's policy back back, back then in the Cold War, right, to, to do China away from Russia, is something which is used, and we've discussed this before, Maria, as a little bit from my perspective, as a little bit of a too easy excuse to argue for engagement with Russia. And it has been used as that since 2014. Perhaps in 2014, it still had a few valid points that one could see. But at latest now in 2022, I don't think that's a strategy which which will work. The Russian-Chinese cooperation is intensifying so many regards in trade aspects, um, in non-lethal military aspects, that this whole alluring idea of we need to come back to engagement with Russia because of China would compromise too many principles to be viable in any way as long as the situation in in Ukraine is as it is right now. So it is an interesting playbook and sort of great power politics that one could sort of intellectually think through. But from the logical assumptions where Russia is right now and where China is right now, I don't think this is a strategy that would work anytime soon. I don't know if you agree, Mike. I completely agree, Liana. I would say this about sort of Kissinger containment and what insights we can draw at the present moment, which is that for Kissinger and for many others, containment was a balance, a balance of two things. It was a strong degree of confrontation and there was targeted engagement. And I think that as the obituary writers have noticed, uh, some of whom who have been pretty critical of Kissinger, that he was no shrinking violet when it came to the conflict side of the of the Cold War sponsoring a widening of the war to, to Cambodia and Laos in the Vietnam War, coup d'etats in Latin America, and, you know, putting it mildly, a very forward-leaning approach to the prosecution of the Cold War when Kissinger judged that to be suitable. And then, of course, dialogue and engagement where that was suitable as well. You know, the Soviet Union that Kissinger was dealing with early 70s was the Soviet Union of Leonid Brezhnev. It was a Soviet Union that was very capable of arms control, you know, cutting certain kinds of deals, the Helsinki Final Act, all of that was doable. And I think it's to Kissinger's credit that he allowed it to be done, that degree of uh, engagement. And of course, the opening to China was a smart move as well. Uh, Exactly as Liana says, I don't think a lot of those options are available to us. I would say none of them at the moment are available when it comes to Putin's Russia. But I was quite delighted to see the meeting between Biden and Xi Jinping precisely for this reason. It's not that, you know, Biden was pulling a Henry Kissinger, as one says, but why not? You know, if if the possibility is there 
it's good. You know, I think it's a bit unsettling in Moscow to see the American president and the leaders of China in dialogue and, and, and in conversation. So I think the Biden administration is able to balance these two things. Uh, and as I understand it, I think that's just very compatible with how you go about doing containment. It's not, you know, full war all the way to the end. And it's definitely not all engagement. It's some mix. So we can we can take that from Kissinger. Michael, I want to maybe pick up on a point that you made about containment and European integration. I mean, it strikes me that a key challenge for Ukraine will be that Russia can always lob missiles at Ukrainian territory, much the way that Hezbollah or Hamas can lob rockets at Israel. And in that sense, they have this ability to always sort of turn, you know, like a dial, turn on the violence. So let's just assume, you know, the front lines are stalemated. They become sort of a de facto DMZ, North Korea, South Korea. And on the one hand, that would seem to make the prospect of Ukraine being able to actualize its EU integration efforts, perhaps not NATO. But then I would think that Russia would just seek to continue to dial up the violence, much the way that it did between 2014 and 2022. One of the sort of profound differences, perhaps, between Ukraine and maybe West Germany is that when Khrushchev built the wall in 1961, he was actually solving a problem for the United States and for Kennedy and for others. Because how did you kind of deal with the fact that there was this kind of open conflict over Berlin's status and then by building the wall, it just kind of resolved everything? I mean, it obviously didn't resolve the status of Berlin, but what it did is sort of uh, solidified the conflict. So then both sides could kind of move on. And then you see the kind of major focal points for kind of global competition move away from Berlin. But so anyway... It strikes me as one of the major challenges for Ukraine is how do you resolve that dilemma, that Russia has this ability to just dial up the violence. And so is a containment strategy then even possible because violence, you know, if we're in a stalemated situation, Russia can continue to sort of block Ukraine's future? Well, I think I would emphasize what uh, what Liana said at the beginning of the conversation, that First of all, what we're advocating for Ukraine is not the achievement of stalemate. As long as Russian soldiers are on Ukrainian territory, Ukraine should be actively pursuing, you know, sort of military measures to, at the very least, to render their status there insecure, uh, and if possible, to get them off Ukrainian territory. So there's something ambient about the way that I think we understand containment, which may be different from some of the different Cold War versions of it, especially when you did have an Iron Curtain between East and West Europe. And, you know, the hot wars of the Cold War were not fought in Europe, they were fought elsewhere. So there are ways in which that model applies. But exactly as you're describing, Max, there are kind of limits to how that applies. Maybe containment is just going to be a lot more difficult in Ukraine because it's a huge country. It has a huge border. You have the kind of Belarus factor there as well, which doesn't make the situation easier for Ukraine. And it's, of course, an active war at the present moment, and I think will remain so for a long time to come. So yeah, some of the privileges of pursuing containment after 1962, when the Berlin Wall was built, are not there in Ukraine. But let's remember that Berlin in particular, but Germany in general, was contested for the first 15, 20 years of the Cold War. In fact, the U.S. had to do the Berlin airlift and the Eisenhower and Kennedy administrations were consumed by the challenge of what to do about Berlin. There they managed, you know, kind of successful deterrence. You know, I don't know if that's exactly an option for a country that's in the midst of a hot war like Ukraine, but maybe we need to turn to some of the non-European models and precedents for containment from the Cold War. But you're right, it's, it's a more difficult task. But still, as a general matter, I think the goal is to prevent the spread of Russian military power. So 
in that sense, there is that kind of direct analogy. In many ways, the kind of strong degree of support for Ukraine so far, let's hope it continues, but that strong degree of support is a foundation on which to do so, sort of do so more capably in the future. So, you know, as ever with learning from history, it's kind of, you know, similarities and differences come into play. But I think the basic comparison is still pretty valid. And I think there are also two weaknesses of at least sort of the EU integration process that could be turned into strength here, which is not the same as, as sort of with the NATO accession process. And the two weaknesses are it takes forever to become an EU member. And the other weakness is it doesn't have a security perspective because Article 42.7 is obviously not the same as Article 5. But these two weaknesses can be turned into strength into the in, in, in the case of Ukraine, that even if EU enlargement takes, I don't know, 10 years to include Ukraine, that is a time perspective which does not immediately bring up the question, okay, what do we do if missiles continue to land in Ukraine? So you can advance on the political track of integrating Ukraine despite continuous sort of missile attacks, fighting and so on. And at the same time, the question of sort of security solidarity doesn't pose itself in the same way to EU members as it does to NATO members. At some point, they will have to address the question, what does Article 42.7, the kind of weak equivalent, I mean, everyone could assess me for calling it an equivalent, but it's a sort of a weak comparison to Article 4, Article 5. Um, what does it mean? But it sort of does not prevent the European Union from advancing on the path to Ukraine's EU membership and advancing on the path of reform, advancing on the path of giving investors um, securities to rebuild Ukraine and so on. So there's a lot of opportunities on the way which these two weaknesses of the EU provide to Ukraine, which is sort of different when it comes to NATO enlargement. And in fact, just to jump in very quickly, there is something that's there from the past that we can use, which is not Cold War history, but Ukraine from 2014 to 2022. It didn't resolve the problem of the war. The war was ongoing. As Ukrainians would remind us, this is not a year and a half or two year war. It's a much longer war than that. But in those years, 2014 to 2022, a lot of important integration steps were taken. So it's already happened and it can just continue happening and we can make it a firmer part of our framework. I'll add also uh, on top of that, Ukraine's army obviously has become much stronger, which also helped in 2022 as part of this uh, strategy of containing Russia. Thank you so much. But uh, obviously, as we are recording this at the very particular moment, unfortunately, it looks like <laughs> things are not as great on the other part of the equation, which is supposed to be right, part of the containment story, specifically the West. Obviously, uh, we all hear about the situation in Congress and Senate with the possibility of prolongating uh, Ukraine aid. Then there is Viktor Orban, of course. The, he, today, he recently called Russia as uh, a Russian civilization. Particular steps of civilization essentially borrowing directly from Putin's uh, language, and he is putting a lot of obstacles on this integration process, as you know. And then, in general, this is just a manifestation of broader trends that seem to be taking place in the Western societies. The fatigue of this corresponding societies, the desire to essentially look the other way, and the regular question, right? What is in it for us? What, what does this war really uh, do in for us? So, how do you see this whole situation uh, unraveling, and how do we? sustain this consistent attention to Ukraine that is needed, right, ultimately for policy to be successful, because ultimately, unfortunately, it's not only up to Ukraine. 
the West also should uh, deliver. My biggest disappointment, and Michael may see this different at the moment, is really with Brussels. Because I think the situation in the US with sort of radical hardline Republicans taking everyone hostage and trying to tie this, you know, into the election year and so on, is not entirely surprising, right? I mean, this sort of domestic context was all, I mean, it's, it's dramatic and it's dangerous as it is. This context was always there and there was always a risk that this could happen. But to see that at this moment, Europe, which actually has been less wobbly than everyone expected and actually has done quite a good job in terms of consistency. And if you look at opinion polls in the European Union, there is continuous support for Ukraine. There are no opinion polls that really suggest that support for Ukraine is going down among European countries. But that we are now in a situation where it is really a question of leadership in Brussels to get out of this deadlock that Viktor Orban and the, the broader situation with Germany's debt break and so on has led everyone that this is not being resolved in this uh, speed, which is sufficient enough and in a matter of policy craft that would make sure that Europe is stepping up to the plate and providing leadership at a moment when the US is wobbly is quite disappointing because it would have been such a strong signal if next week accession talk, if Ukraine gets the 50 billion that were promised, if it gets the 20 billion for the armament facility. I mean, there are various reasons that one can't explain why this is not the case. Orban seems to have a stronger problem right now. He was trying it to von der Leyen's future. But there's nothing that seems unsurmountable because the structure of support for Ukraine in Europe has not really changed. So it is quite disappointing to me. And I do hope that the European Union its negotiators can surprise us until then next week. It would be such an important signal also to Republicans on the Hill that Europe is not becoming wobbly, because I don't really see a reason why Europe should become wobbly right now. It's sort of a question of negotiation skill and tactics. And Brussels is actually quite good at that. So I don't see any reason why they shouldn't be able to succeed this time. And if they don't, then it is really also the fault of member states. For example, also Berlin, which is not bringing in the weight that it should and the priority that it should to the to the Ukraine case. Liana, maybe I'll, I'll just jump in and do a plug for our, our other sister podcast, The Europhile, which goes deep on the the German debt break and its implications for Europe. And I completely agree with you. In some ways, the tyranny of European finance ministers and their kind of head in the sand understanding of geopolitics, I find utterly depressing at this given moment, because if anything, this is a real opportunity for Europe to step up. And in many ways, where it looks like is actually austerity, defaulting back to austerity, looks like it's, it's going to retake Brussels. But Michael, uh, back over to you. So, you know, sort of three quick points to your really crucial question, Maria. I do think that Western publics, for whatever reason, have become complacent about the war. Maybe they've lost the fear that was there at the beginning. Maybe they've lost the sense of horror that was connected to Bucha and the European in sort of March, April of 2022. Maybe they become preoccupied in the case of the U.S. with, you know, sort of domestic concerns. And, and you know, obviously the, you know, Israel-Hamas war is, is, is something that in media terms kind of detracts from the Ukraine story. I do think in this regard, I don't say this with any happiness, but I think that the war is going to shatter that sense of complacency at a certain point. And that could happen this winter and it could remind us of the high stakes and that it's a winnable war uh, on our side, but that means it's also a losable war. And maybe people have to be reminded that we need to go lower uh, in some respects before some of that commitment returns on the political level. So it's not an optimistic point, but, you know, sort of one claim. In terms of strategies of persuasion, the best I can think of, going back to some things that Liana said earlier, 
to, to reemphasize this notion of containment, you do need to, to speak strongly to the values that are at stake here. And you need to speak with equal clarity about the interests are at stake that are at stake. And I think that those bring in different constituencies. You know, Mitch McConnell would choose to emphasize the kind of value of domestic spending on military support for Ukraine, that it brings jobs to the United States. That's fine. You know, however it can be done, however you bring together the interests and the values, and maybe that can link some of the center left and some of the center right constituencies behind a strong and kind of long term policy of support to, to Ukraine. But uh, I do see advantages in, you know, sort of upholding or promoting containment uh, in this regard. And finally, and I think this was sort of, you know, implicit to what you were saying, Maria, that the wobbliness that we're all seeing before our eyes is, of course, very costly. And this has to be uh, underscored. It's costly in the sense that, you know, containment, when it works, sort of convinces the other side that it's not worth it. Uh, and that's kind of what happened at the end of the, of the Cold War. It no longer really became worth it for the Soviet Union to wage the Cold War. And I think, of course, what Putin is getting from the present moment is almost the opposite impression that this trajectory is going to go down. Trajectory of support to Ukraine, I think he just said some flattering words to Republicans in Congress within the last 12 hours, Putin, about their posture on Ukraine. And so it becomes all the more difficult to do what you kind of need to do strategically if you can't create the perception of long time long-term support. In some ways, the worst that we could do is support Ukraine for the long term, but make it seem every two months like it's going to collapse in the short term. Then we get the support, but we don't get the kinds of things that we would want to accomplish strategically. So to impress on policymakers, this point also seems also seems important. What we're doing now is pretty costly. And what Michael just said about the optimism rising in Moscow then reinforces our perception that Moscow is stronger than we thought, right? So it leads to a reinforcing effect that suddenly... You know, during the Prigozhin mutiny, everyone was, and we were talking about the instability in Russia. Now the pendulum swings back and everyone talks about, oh, it's stabilized and he will run for legitimacy. I mean, do the elections in Russia and then he will be able to have another partial mobilization and so on. So we are sort of, again, on the side where we might be overestimating Russia's strength because they, and Putin tries to, to communicate such an optimistic outlook in, in where he stands. And that might change again when we will be reminded at some point next year that Russia is not as stable <laughs> as it always seems. So the pendulum here, in terms of the more pessimistic we are in Ukraine, the more optimistic Moscow is, and the more optimistic we are about Russia's strength, always goes sort of back, back and forth. I want to ask maybe one final question, and that's sort of containment's endgame. But before I do that, just one quick comment. That it does strike me that one of the things that we also saw during the Cold War in the United States was that we had bipartisan unity in support of the effort to contain the Soviet Union. Now, there are differences in strategy, but everyone was sort of aligned that uh, the Soviet Union was our adversary and action needed to be taken. And what strikes me with the Ukraine funding is, you know, there's, I think, plenty of public opinion, of public support. Ukraine funding would just continue because it's above water. It's above 50 percent. But yet we do have this far right element within uh, the Republican Party that has just decided to make it a political issue. Like it doesn't have to be a political issue. In fact, it's not even like beneficial to the Republican Party, I would say overall. It's just that you have faction that has turned against the kind of broader internationalist foreign policy outlook. And in some ways, I think we're more at fault, Liana, than I would say the EU, because at least on the EU side, it would be inventing new tools that have never really happened or doing new things that has never really happened before. To turn to sort of the final question, is containment's endgame? It strikes me that part of the logic of containment is that you are waiting out your opponent's system, that, you know, communism, that wasn't going to work. Eventually, there's going to be some, some change. And we just have to play the long game here and wait it out. 
does strike me also something similar with Russia. I mean, Putin will not live forever, presumably. And so is the strategy to sort of wait out Putin and then we'll sort of see what happens next? I mean, perhaps to start, I think in the Cold War, in different phases, no one was really quite sure whether that would be the end game, right? I mean, whether waiting out that communism is the worst system will collapse. I mean, certainly not with the, in the Sputnik moment. It was certainly not the kind of thinking at that time, right? So it's something that we sort of apply now in hindsight as the lesson from, from the Cold War that we just have sort of to wait out. I would say it's not enough to wait out. I think we have to, and that's what we argue in the piece, we have to put pressure on Russia because just waiting that Putin will leave, will leave and Marie and I are working on a paper on the leadership change um, perspectives in, in, in Moscow. It's, it's, it's not a strategy. It's not active enough, right? I mean, there needs to be an active component and the greatest leverage that the West has is via Ukraine. It's much greater leverage than we would have in any way of looking at Russian domestic politics or trying to interfere in that. And, and sort of the other part of that is we should also not hope for sort of the complete collapse of Russia or the complete sort of downfall of Putin in a very dramatic way, in the same way that we hoped sort of for a triumphant battlefield victory of Ukraine, right? So if, if that's the alternative to a triumphant battlefield victory, and it's again sort of placing too many hopes on something which can happen, but doesn't have to happen, given how, how Russia has managed to stabilize also its economic system. But I think in the end, the end game in Ukraine will be to leverage as much to put as much pressure on Russia as we have, and to some extent to see and wait. I mean, we had so many unexpected events in the last one and a half years. It's not, not a war where you can sort of predict the course of the war exactly, but it is a problem in public communication because the question, what will be the end game, is something that publics want an answer to, and ideally an answer with a date when this war is going to end and how it's going to end. This kind of ambiguity and this kind of accepting that we might not exactly know how the war will go and how it will end is, is a difficult public narrative. Yeah, to go back into the to, to the history, just to amplify what Liana has just said, I mean, John F. Kennedy referred to the Cold War as a long twilight struggle, and there was certainly no end in sight into the 19, in the 1960s. In fact, you know, nobody really predicted the demise of the Soviet Union, or very few people did. So almost the entirety of the Cold War was fought without the expectation that it would ever really have an end game or a, a termination. That's a little bit different with Cannon. If you read the X article in the Long Telegram, he does kind of anticipate the eventual crack up of the Soviet Union. So that was a hope, but uh, it was not, you know, a kind of lived reality for most of the Cold War. And, you know, just quickly to your point about domestic political unity, Max, it's true for the Cold War, but there were times when it was really wildly as well, you know, sort of 1968 and, you know, the chaos of the Democratic nominating convention and much of the 1970s, sort of Watergate and battles between the executive branch and the legislature and, you know, sort of party politics and all of that. So, you know, a lot of the difficult phases of the Cold War were domestic difficulties. And that's good to re remember at a moment when we have a few of those ourselves. But, you know, the core insight of containment is cannons. And it's that in the nuclear age, you can't really have unconditional surrender of a nuclear adversary as your strategic goal. So you need something a bit different. And, you know, I would say it's exactly what Liana articulates. It's a strategy of patience. You pin your opponent to a certain place, try to prevent that opponent from advancing. You work on your own domestic political strengths. In this case, we work on the integration of Ukraine into Europe, and we just wait and see about Russia without too much optimism that things would rapidly get better, but also without too much pessimism that it will sort of always stay the same as it did not in the 1980s in the end phase of the Cold War. So it's a kind of middle of the road in many ways, a middle of the road strategy. And I think that that's, I would say it's really its core strength. Unfortunately, we'll have to leave it there. Thank you to Michael and Liana for your great contributions. And thank you as well to all our listeners. 
If you haven't already, please be sure to subscribe to our podcast and please also take the time to give us a positive rating. It really helps raise the visibility of the podcast. Additionally, please consider subscribing or at least just check out our sister podcast, The Eurofile, wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time. You've been listening to Russian Roulette. We hope you enjoyed this episode and tune in again soon. Russian Roulette releases new episodes every two weeks on Thursdays and is available wherever you get your podcasts. So please subscribe and share our episodes online. And be sure to check out all the latest analysis by the Europe, Russia and Eurasia program at csis.org. Mm-hmm.